0: Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional health care for all. Your journey to better health starts here. Hello, this is Dr. Siebold here out of Forum Health, Utah. I just wanted to thank you for joining us again on our uh, quest to talk about sleep and to get better sleep. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about different sleep disorders and Hopefully, with this podcast, you might be able to identify if you have certain features that consist with a sleep disorder that you may want to be evaluated for. Of note, there exist more than 80 different types of sleep disorders. The uh, International Classification of Sleep Disorders is the most widely used classification system to help categorize these different sleep-related disorders. In general, these can be lumped into about six major categories according to their clinical features. I will say, though, that there's generally about three broad clinical features of sleep disorders, although there can be many different symptoms. These three broad clinical features include an inability to fall asleep or to stay asleep through the night. They include excessive daytime sleepiness and also sleep-related movement phenomena. Other common symptoms, though, that people may experience include snoring, uh, apnea, hypopnea events where you get complete or partial uh, obstruction of your airway, headaches on awakening, unrefreshing sleep, regardless of how much time you spend asleep, trouble staying awake when you're inactive, difficulty paying attention, slow response time, and difficulty managing emotions. All of those may suggest that you have a chronic uh, sleep disorder that you want to have evaluated. When it comes to the six major categories of sleep disorders, they include insomnia, number one, number two, sleep-related breathing disorders, number three, central disorders of hypersomnolence, number four, circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, number five, parasomnias, and lastly, number six, sleep-related movement disorders. So these five, excuse me, these six broad categories generally encompass most chronic sleep problems. And so we're going to talk about each of these different categories and some of the more common sleep disorders that you might find within each of these categories. So that first category is insomnia. So when it comes to insomnia, People most commonly describe difficulty falling asleep, and that's really the hallmark feature of insomnia. However, difficulty maintaining sleep or a perception of unrefreshing sleep can also be clinical features of insomnia. When when we talk about insomnia, we generally break it down into two subcategories, chronic insomnia and acute insomnia. In regards to chronic insomnia, there are two main ones that I want to talk about. First one is psychophysiologic insomnia, and the other is insomnia due to mental to a mental disorder. So, what is psychophysiologic insomnia? This is also known as primary insomnia and affects about 1 to 2% of the general population. It's primarily characterized by physiologic heightened arousal state that predisposes an individual to um, learned sleep-preventing associations. Um, usually in a, in a setting of social or environmental psychosocial stressors. Um, in general, persons with psychophysiologic insomnia are typically light or poor sleepers. To kind of That was kind of a lot of big words there all at once, but generally these are people who do not sleep very deep and often because of fear of not being able to sleep will have struggle actually going to sleep. Now, in regards to insomnia due to mental disorders, Uh, This this affects more people that have depression and anxiety. And this tends to be about 3% of the general population. Um, Typically, this is seen more in women than in men, and it typically affects them in the middle-aged years. Um, When it comes to depression, uh, major depressive disorder, uh, insomnia is by far the most common sleep disturbance. uh, And it affects about 80 to 85% of patients. Usually it manifests itself as recurrent or early morning awakenings. So you wake up a lot during the night or you wake up too early before it's time to start getting up. Often that can be associated with depression. Anxiety, on the other hand, is a little bit different. And more often this is characterized by difficulty falling asleep. Uh, And usually people will have struggles turning off their brains and they'll have excess worrying and and just kind of perseverating on different things that that are bothering them or on their mind. Now, when it comes to short-term insomnia, uh, this is also known as adjustment insomnia or acute insomnia. this refers to people that have had trouble falling asleep or staying asleep with a duration less than three months. Once it starts to to, uh, occur longer than three months, we start to think of more of a chronic sleep disorder. Um, Typically, people get adjustment insomnia due to some kind of identifiable stressor. Um, It's estimated that about 20% of adults Uh, will experience some form of uh, acute insomnia during a year's time. Um, And certain things that could affect this um, are are just different positive or negative events in one's life, right? Getting a new job, um, stress from work, bereavement, having problems with relationships, um, anything can really trigger acute insomnia. Um, Acute insomnia is expected, though, to resolve once the acute stressor is either removed or you've adapted to it um, and and to the new triggering circumstance that's been been causing the problem. So those are are some of the main causes for insomnia and how it breaks down as far as chronic uh, insomnia versus short-term insomnia. The second major category of sleep uh, disorders is sleep-related breathing disorders. And there's a few main ones that I wanna briefly talk about here. The first one is central sleep apnea. Um, Central sleep apnea is a disorder where your brain fails to send the proper signals to the muscles that control your breathing, and it results in you having these periodic episodes where you actually stop breathing during sleep. Um, This affects roughly 1% of people over the age of 40 in the United States. The most common cause of sleep-related breathing disorders is obstructive sleep apnea. Again, this is also characterized by recurrent episodes of complete or partial upper airway obstruction during sleep. Complete airway obstruction is known as apnea, and partial airway obstruction is known as uh, hypopnea. So obstructive sleep apnea can often be uh, seen with low oxygen levels, excuse me, with oxygen desaturation or your oxygen levels drop during the sleep and often is associated with recurrent arousals or awakenings at nighttime. Uh, these are quantified on a polysomnograph. That's typically how we diagnose obstructive sleep apnea is you have to go for a sleep study, um, and you'd have to show at least five of these apneic or hypopnic events per hour. Um, as far as prevalence, sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea affects about 4% of men and 2% of women. The primary risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea are obesity or other cranial facial abnormalities that cause narrowing of your upper airway. And one of the most common ones of these is uh, enlargement of your adenoids and tonsils. This would actually be potentially a very reasonable uh, uh, cause to have tonsils and adenoids removed if it's obstructing your airway. Other risk factors include include large neck circumference, menopause, smoking, and some endocrine disorders like hypothyroidism or acromegaly. The classic history when it comes to obstructive sleep apnea includes snoring at nighttime, excessive daytime sleepiness, uh, witnessed apnea or choking or gasping episodes uh, when someone's sleeping, and then just waking up with unrefreshing sleep regardless of how long you slept at night. Obstructive sleep apnea is actually quite common, and and with the rising uh, rates of obesity, we're seeing more and more obstructive sleep apnea. Certainly if if, uh, your partner says that you snore, or that uh, they've they've witnessed episodes where you seem to stop breathing, you know, more momentarily, uh, and then you arouse yourself to start breathing again. Uh, it sounds like a high probability that you may have obstructive sleep apnea, and I would really encourage you uh, to seek out a uh, polysomnograph, you know, a sleep study, um, to to have that evaluated. Another uh, sleep related breathing disorder is known as sleep related hypoventilation disorder, and this is diagnosed when a person's Blood oxygen level decreases uh, below 90% for five minutes or longer during sleep. This generally occurs from either breathing too shallowly or too slowly. Uh, There are other certain subtypes of this um, and different reasons for this, but I'm not going to go into too much more detail on that. The next broad category of of sleep disorders is central disorders of hypersomnolence. And so these are disorders that basically you have excessive sleepiness during the daytime, right? So the most common cause for daytime sleepiness that is not due to underlying pathology is generally just due to not getting enough sleep at night. Um, For most of us, when life gets stressful or busy, we tend to push out our sleep first more than anything else. Uh, And sometimes that can be pretty detrimental. We know that sleeping less than four to five hours per night is generally... Uh, going to be a, a primary cause for daytime alertness. Now, I'm not recommending four to five hours as a baseline need for sleep because adults really need seven to nine hours of sleep. But generally, when you're less than that six-hour mark, you're going to start to see struggles to to maintain uh, alertness during the daytime. If you're talking about the most common cause, though, of excessive daytime sleepiness, that's related to obstructive sleep apnea. Um, so, so these central disorders of hypersomnolence are actually quite rare. The most common one that people know of or hear of is narcolepsy. Um, narcolepsy affects approximately one in five thousand to one in five hundred uh, people in Western populations. Usually, this uh, occurs during adolescence or young adulthood. So, in those age range, in that age range of fifteen to twenty-five, and is characterized by excessive daytime sleepiness, cataplexy um there are often irresistible sleep attacks sleep paralysis and then hypnagogic or, or hypnopompic hallucinations hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations are these vivid audio visual uh, phenomena that occur just right at the time of falling asleep or right at the time of awakening um, it's pretty classic for individuals with narcolepsy to report that if they can just get a quick nap They'll often awake very refreshed and ready to go, um, you know, for the next two to three hours before they start to feel tired or fatigued again. It's also of of, uh, significance to note that not all narcoleptic patients report cataplexy, right? Cataplexy is one of the hallmark features of of narcolepsy, and that refers to a sudden loss of muscle tone, uh, which is provoked by strong emotions such as laughter or anger, Um, but in which your consciousness is preserved, right? So you lose muscle tone, you can't really move, but you're very much alert and with it. Um, That's one of the hallmark features of narcolepsy. However, it's important to note that there are a subgroup of individuals who have narcolepsy, but do not have that that feature of cataplexy. If you're looking at narcolepsy, that's generally gonna be diagnosed with a, a sleep study again, as well as some other sleep testing um, a couple of the hallmark features seen on that is that the sleep onset time is less than eight minutes. Um, and then the sleep onset REM periods, um, which refers to getting into that dream sleep right away, which usually takes about 90 to 120 minutes into sleep, actually occurs very quickly just in a 20-minute nap. Um, so that's that's central disorders of hypersomnolence. So the the fourth broad category is circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders. One of the most common ones is is jet lag disorder, right? And this occurs typically when you travel across two different time zones, um, and typically when you're going from west to east. And the reason for this is that in your previous uh, time zone, you know where you're used to living, your body says, "Hey, it's not time to sleep yet; it's only 9 p.m." Whereas if you've traveled two time zones away, it's now 11 p.m., and trying to fall asleep early can be very difficult. Um, we're not going to talk about this today, but there's certainly some tricks that you can do to help prevent jet lag and to get you onto that new time zone where you're going to be located. Um, when you're going from east to west, it's it's usually not too difficult to stay up an hour or two longer uh, to help you um, adjust more quickly to that time zone, uh, but that's something to kind of consider. Another very common cause for circadian sleep disorders is shift work disorder, right? And this has to do with working during a hour of the day when your body is not used to being awake, right? So when you're on a swing shift or the night shift, uh, your, your, your circadian rhythm for most people, not everyone, for a third of people, fourth, or maybe a little bit more, uh, they're 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 ready to go to sleep during that time. Instead, you're up working, and so when it comes time to to get off shift and to go home and go to bed, uh, you struggle to fall asleep because your your body's now coming to that normal circadian rhythm where it wants to start waking up. Right? There's another one uh, that we talk about briefly, and that's called advanced sleep phase disorder, and this refers to individuals who progressively want to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier than what their usual circadian rhythm is is used to. And this happens to the point where some people will go to bed at 6 p.m. and then want to wake up at 2 a.m. Um, And and so you just have a harder time staying awake during those normal hours where typically you should be awake, where most people don't struggle to sleep. And that's that's advanced sleep phase disorder. So circadian uh, rhythm sleep-wake disorders um, are, are certainly very common. Uh, Generally, they're very easy to diagnose. They don't require a sleep study, but but can be diagnosed just simply through the history. Um, The next uh, broad category of sleep disorders uh, are known as parasomnias. And these are broken down into non-REM-related parasomnias and REM-related parasomnias. So non-REM parasomnias are disorders of arousal seen usually in the pediatric population and they include confusional arousals, where you wake up just really confused and out of it. They'll include sleepwalking and and something known as sleep terrors. So sleepwalking is also known as somnambulism, and it consists of abnormal uh, behaviors during non-REM sleep, right? We know that during REM sleep, where our bodies are actually paralyzed to help prevent us from uh, acting out our dreams. In non-REM sleep, our bodies can move, and so People that struggle with sleepwalking, uh, will they'll wake up, excuse me, they won't wake up. They'll have this impaired state of consciousness, but they'll be up and moving about. And this can be problematic. Uh, violent behaviors are seen during this time. People have been known to drive cars or to climb out of windows uh, to do behaviors that are really quite quite risky without knowing what they're doing, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, sleepwalking is definitely higher in children up to 17% of kids than it is in adults, where typically only up to 4% might be, uh, might be, uh, afflicted by this. Precipitating factors, uh, for sleepwalking include sleep deprivation, uh, sleep disorders that precipitate arousals, um, febrile illnesses in kids. And then especially in adults, physical or emotional stress, uh, can be a cause for this. Um, the biggest concern with sleepwalking is, is just injury to oneself. Um, next would be sleep terrors. Uh, so sleep terrors, or also known as night terrors, occur in about two to three percent of children and adults. Uh, and these consist of uh, arousals, again, from deep non-REM sleep and are characterized by intense like behavioral manifestations of, of fear, uh, hearts racing. They may be breathing really heavy. Pupils will be dilated. They'll be like profusely sweating, Um, usually these episodes are are associated with really frightening dreams, um, confusion, disorientation, and and really classically is there's no memory of the event uh, following it the next day. The kid doesn't remember waking up and screaming uncontrollably, being inconsolable, um, I remember this happened to one of my daughters once, and um, the, we, the, she was our first child, and she was uh, two, about two years old at the time. And she just woke up completely unconsolable, screaming, and, and then eventually just went back to sleep. Um, and the next day just had z- absolutely zero recollection of, of the event. So those are known as sleep terrors. Now the other half of these parasomnias, these are REM-related parasomnias, right? So these occur during REM sleep, which is that phase of sleep where we're dreaming and and we typically should have some paralysis, meaning uh, we're not able to move during this state. And this is this is an evolutionary um, event that has kind of helped protect us during these dreaming behaviors from acting out those dreams. Uh, two major ones I want to talk about here. Number one is nightmare disorder. This affects about 2 to 8% of the general population and up to about 50% of young kids, right? And this is characterized by recurrent frightening dreams that occur during REM sleep, um, which often result in in waking up and, and disruption of, of one's sleep, right? Um, the, the classic feature here versus a night terror is that generally uh, both adults and kids can recall the events um, or the details of their dream the next day, um, in adults, the frequent nightmares have been associated with physical or emotional trauma, uh, stress, and an underlying uh, psychopathology or underlying mental health problems. Um, the second one I want to talk about was REM sleep behavior disorder. So REM sleep uh, behavior disorder primarily affects older men, and it, it occurs in maybe a half of 1% of the general population, so 1 in 200 uh, individuals, right? Right. And this is actually uh, in this in, the, in REM sleep uh, behavior disorder, you actually see uh, dream enactment, uh, where that mechanism to to uh, prevent your body from moving during sleep or during excuse me during dream sleep uh, doesn't actually occur, and so uh, this can cause injury to oneself or to one's uh, bed partner. Right? Um, these uh, episodes typically consist of acting out unpleasant or violent dreams. Uh, with behaviors such as shouting, punching, kicking, running, um, and are often reported uh, typically because of injury to oneself or to to your partner uh, in bed with you. These also generally occur in the last half of sleep at night. This is when uh, REM sleep is more common um, and it occurs in that last half to third uh, of sleep. Um, I will say that REM uh, sleep behavior disorder has been associated with other neurodegenerative disorders such as Parkinson's disease and can even be acutely triggered by certain psychotropic medications or withdrawal from alcohol and or other sedative uh, slash hypnotic uh, type medications, right? Um, so that, that's our, our fifth category here. And the final category is sleep-related movement disorders. And there's two primary ones I wanna talk about. The first one is restless leg syndrome. Uh, restless leg syndrome is a is a clinical diagnosis based off of four essential criteria. So that first criterion is is an urge to move one's legs that's often accompanied or caused by uncomfortable or unpleasant sensations in the legs. Right, so it's like I got to move my legs because they're like I just feel this need. I got to move them, or they they're hurting or painful. Right. Um, the second feature is that that urge to move them or that unpleasant sensation begins or worsens. Typically during periods of rest or inactivity, so when you just lie down to go to sleep, or you're sitting down towards the end of the day watching television, that's when these these um, uh, these urges or sensations uh, start to occur. The third criterion is that um, once you do actually start to move them, that urge and the unpleasant sensation actually relieves itself it goes away it gets better you don't feel like you have to keep moving you feel like okay i got up i took a short little walk i moved my legs i did some stretching i feel pretty good my symptoms are improved Um, and then the fourth criterion is that the urge to move or the unpleasant sensations are actually worse in the evening or nighttime hours compared to the day Um, so this is typically something again that occurs later in the day I'm sitting down in my chair, chair to rest before bedtime, or I've gone to sleep, or not, not sleep yet, but I've gotten in bed, lie down, and, and getting ready to go to sleep, and I start to feel these sensations. Um, those four criteria really help you to diagnose restless leg syndrome. Of significance, this affects 5 to 15% of Caucasians and is more common in women than it is in men. Um, restless leg syndrome is also associated with periodic limb movements in sleep um, in about 80 to 90% of cases. So very commonly people that have reckless, restless legs, which is all this sensation prior to going to bed in the evening hours, will also have problems or need, um, to, to move their legs during sleep as well. As far as an underlying cause for this, uh, sometimes we don't know what the cause is. It's, it's known to be idiopathic, right? We don't know what the underlying cause is. For some though, it may be related to a deficiency of iron, It could be related to peripheral neuropathy, uremia, or or even pregnancy. Uh, Other common causes include chronic kidney disease, heart disease, diabetes, and Parkinson's disease. There's also certain medications, in particular antipsychotics and SSRIs, uh, that can also cause uh, restless leg syndrome. SSRIs is that class of medications that we most commonly use to treat depression and anxiety and some other underlying uh, serotonin-related disorders. Now, the other Uh, somewhat common uh, sleep-related movement disorders known as periodic limb movement disorder. And this goes back to what I just briefly said a few minutes ago, is that uh, some people during sleep actually are are moving their legs quite commonly um, during sleep. Um, So so, uh, periodic limb movement disorder refers to abnormal limb movements manifest in sleep rather than wakefulness or before sleep onset uh, causing trouble staying asleep at nighttime, right? And so, the primary way that this is going to be diagnosed is going to be with a polysomnograph, again, a sleep study. Uh, and then on that sleep study, you'll you'll see or, or noted on there will be the need to move one's extremities. Um, so, hopefully, uh, that that gives you some general information. These are some of the most common sleep disorders that people experience. Sure, they're broken down into about six major categories, but there's, again, just a few classic hallmark features. And so if you're starting to, ex, if you're experiencing some of these things, a partner has has suggested that you, you do some of these things during sleep, I would strongly recommend that you have evaluation uh, to, to take a look further. Um, impaired sleep uh, really affects our overall well-being in so many ways. So hopefully that's helpful for you to Uh, for you. Uh, Tune in again next week. This will be our last um, episode, and we'll talk more about how we can treat uh, sleep-related disorders. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com.